Uh, well, it's my privilege to bring the message this morning. Um, God has laid a, a particular uh, message on my heart and um, really uh, can be summarized in one word, and uh, it's up on the screen, servanthood. That's, it's been on my mind, uh, the, the topic of servanthood. Uh, and maybe to just get us started, I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 9, uh, just to, to, to have a, a passage to set the stage for us. We're going to be looking at a variety of passages. This is going to be more of a Bible study for us this morning, and we'll see how far we get. Um, did not get as far as I would hope last, uh, last hour, so we'll see about, about, uh, uh, about this time around. But um, just to, to have this in our minds as we start, look at verse 33 of Mark 9. Mark writes, And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Last of all and servant of all. Every single believer... If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, every believer is is called to um, the high and the lofty, privileged calling of servanthood. And I say that um, that it is a high calling, it is a privileged calling, it is a lofty calling, but it is a counterintuitive and countercultural calling. Because we have to understand, um, as we think about servanthood, as we think about what it means to serve... It is, by definition, putting others before yourself. It is esteeming others as more important than yourself. It is being willing to be last rather than first. It's being willing to serve rather than be served. And there is a three-front war that is raging all around us that is being waged against your soul to make you ineffective as a servant. Paul talks about... um, Three, three parallel realities that are going on in, in our lives in, in Ephesians chapter 2 that can be summarized um, with three words. The world, and you know them well, the world, the flesh, and the what? The devil. A three-front war that's all converging on you. The world, it's, it's the world system, it's the culture that it stands against God, stands against the values of God, stands against the purposes of God. It's the culture that says, this world is for you. This is about you. This is about what you can gain. This is about what you can get out of things. It's about you putting yourself first. It's about you getting ahead, whatever the cost. The world preaches to you. It preaches to you materialism. It preaches to you consumerism. It's a constant assault. And it would maybe be so bad if it wasn't for the fact of the flesh is always there, that fallen nature that's been pinned to the cross but is still wiggling and squirming and sometimes we want to go over and we want to pet it. We just don't want to let it go. And the flesh is always willing to oblige. We don't have to be taught how to love ourselves. We do it naturally. 
And when the culture is saying, love yourself, love yourself, put yourself first, and your flesh is going, okay, you win. It seeks its own comforts, it seeks its own interests, it seeks its own desires. And then always in the background, you have the enemy of your soul, the devil himself, who is completely at odds with everything that God stands for. He is the ruler of this world. He's the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's working in the sons of disobedience that Paul says in Ephesians 2.2. He's the one who manipulates the world systems to play on our flesh. And his goal is the destruction of your soul. And if he can't do that, then he will at least do the next best thing, which was take you out of the game, sideline you, make you ineffective for service. So there's this war that's going on, and it's going on all the time. And to a certain degree or another, we're, we're maybe insulated from it uh, or not insulated from it, depending on where God has you in, in, uh, in his grace and in his providence. But it's there. And this call to servanthood is, is a completely countercultural upside-down way of thinking about how to live life in this world because it is contrary to everything about the world. It's contrary to the world. It's contrary to our fallen nature. It's contrary to the values of the enemy. God wants you to be an effective servant. He's called you to servanthood. You don't have a choice. He's called you there. It's just really a question of whether or not you're answering that call and whether or not you're, you're answering the call effectively. That's really what it comes down to. God wants you to be an effective servant for the the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so we have to ask that question then. What what does it mean to be a true servant of God? What what is it that God wants us to be as his servants? What does it look like to be a servant in the kingdom of God? And So that's what I want to try to answer this morning as we look at, um, at some texts. We look specifically at eight, eight essential elements of servanthood. I have uh, no, uh, I, well, let me say this. It's very ambitious that I have put eight down. And I have, uh, I, I, I'm not convinced that we will get to all eight. Um, so this might just have to go into a part two for another time, but we'll, we'll get as far as we can. Um, but I understand that I'm talking to a variety of people in this room. Some of you are already serving, and you've been faithfully serving. Maybe you've been serving in a particular ministry post for years, and you've just been doing it, and what you need is a word of encouragement to keep going, and, and that's what you have here. Uh, some, some maybe, maybe you aren't serving. Maybe you're, you're not in a capacity where you're serving, or you're, you feel like you're, you can't be used, or there's not a place that you fit in and, to serve, and, and that's where I want to try to maybe clarify some things. And then there's some others um, and we'll talk about it specifically in a minute, that I would maybe say, maybe you shouldn't be serving right now. Maybe serving is not what you need to be doing, and, and I want to address that first. But regardless uh, of it, I, I want us to understand what true servanthood in the body of Christ looks like. And so let's look at our first point. <clears throat> kind of servants this God wants us to be. The first one is the most foundational. He wants us to be gospel-enabled servants. Gospel-enabled servants. This is... This is the, the reality and the truth that makes all the other things we're going to talk about make sense. If, if this isn't true for you, then the others don't really matter. 
There is no service that you can give to God or to others that precedes faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel has to be the first door that you walk through in servanthood. The gospel is what makes you a servant. And to try to to serve the Lord outside of Jesus Christ is an utter exercise in futility. You remember um, Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7 at the close of the Sermon on the Mount. He said some chilling words that really, I think, caught his, his listeners off guard. In verse 21 of chapter 7 of Matthew, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Then he says this, this, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and, and do many mighty works in your name? And then he will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The most chilling words that we could ever hear from the Lord Jesus Christ is the words... I never knew you after living a life thinking that we were serving the Lord. And we never knew him and he never knew us. You get to that place because of a a variety of factors, but ultimately it comes down to the one thing is you cannot expect to be able to serve the very God you are currently in rebellion against. Think about what um, Paul describes as um, the state of the world and the state of the unbeliever when he um, outlines in Romans chapter 1 the, kind of the, the state of the fall. And he says specifically in Romans chapter 1 verse 25 that fallen man, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served The creature rather than the creator. That fallen man's issue is not that he just doesn't serve enough or that he doesn't serve in the right way. It's because he's ultimately serving the wrong God. Fallen man does not want to serve God. He does not desire to serve God. Jesus said in Luke 16, verse 13, No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and he will love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and at the same time be enslaved to your sin. You need the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse you of that sin, to break the bonds of that slavery to your sin, that you might be slaves to righteousness and slaves to Jesus Christ, then you can serve him with a full heart. Then you can serve him and stand before him on the day of judgment and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. He doesn't say that to those who don't know him. You want to hear that? So, So servanthood starts at the gospel. Servanthood starts with belief in Jesus Christ and not before then. There's a trend in churches... um, and it's, it's built out of pragmatism to try to plug people who don't know the Lord, who aren't believers. Maybe they're seeking something. Uh, I think uh, if you were to think biblically about seeking, you would say no one seeks after God. That's Paul's point in Romans 3. 
But uh, these are, are superficial seekers of God, and, and they, they get plugged into ministry someday, somewhere. Maybe they, maybe they say, the, the church says, well, well, we'll use them as greeters at the front door, or we'll, we'll have them serve with the believer in children's ministry, and they'll hear the gospel, and they'll kind of interact and rub shoulders with believers, and, and maybe they'll come and hear the gospel and be saved through that. And I understand the sentiment of that, but I absolutely oppose it. It's pure pragmatism. And what it ends up doing is it ends up saying to this person two things. Number one, you can serve God and at the same time be in rebellion against him. And, and he, this person has no idea his service is rendered for nothing. Because he will, if in, left in that uncon, un, unredeemed condition, stand before God and hear, depart from me. And that's not what he's going to expect, Right? And number two, I mean, you are reinforcing works righteousness. What do you think is going to be going through this, this person's head? We are bent towards works righteousness. We are bent towards the belief that we can make ourselves right with God. We just do a little better. We just serve a little more. And so you plug somebody in like that, and what do you think that they're going to think? I'm, 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 I'm on the right path. I'm serving. I'm making things up. You don't want that. It's counterproductive. It's soul damning. True servanthood starts with the gospel. So if there's anyone in here who, is, who, who has yet to believe in Jesus Christ, I'm imploring you right now, just as, 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 a, as a pastor, but also just as, uh, as, as a fellow human being who, uh, who is a sinner, who has been saved by grace, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. Your sin is not worth the price. But confess it. See it for what it is. It's soul-damning, soul-crushing sin that will send you to hell for eternity. So repent of it. Put your faith, put your trust in the one person who could bear the weight of that sin We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way, Isaiah says. The Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. By his wounds, we're healed. Don't get ahead of yourself. Don't don't try to serve God before you first come to him in faith. Servanthood starts at the gospel. Okay, so that's, that's the first thing. That's the foundation level. Let's talk about another Another point. Kind of servants does God want? He wants gospel enabled servants. He also wants Christ like servants. Christ like servants. Being a Christian is being a disciple of Jesus Christ, being a learner, being a follower of Jesus Christ. To be a Christian, the word Christian means a little Christ. We're followers of Christ. And the entire Christian life is one long process of God taking us from who we were before we were saved. And then as we were saved, the power of sin over us, the, the penalty of sin was, was, was destroyed as, as we were justified and we were declared not righteous. And someday God is going to actually save us from the very presence of sin when we stand before him holy and blameless. But the, the Christian life is a process of God saving us not just from the penalty of sin but from the power of sin. And it's called sanctification. Sanctification. 
And sanctification in a nutshell is God making you more like Jesus Christ. And, and that's what we should want, right? That's, as, as a believer, as a follower of Christ, we want to be like Christ. Well, guess what? Christ was a serpent. Christ was a servant. He told his disciples in Matthew 20, maybe turn there for a moment. This is a parallel text to the one that we saw in, in Luke chapter 9. But uh, in Matthew chapter 20, um, he said in uh, beginning in chapter, in verse 25, uh, Jesus called them and said to him, You know that the rulers and the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Now here is where he drills the nail home. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. When you think about it, who's the one person who has ever lived in the history of the universe that deserves to be served and not to serve anybody? And it's who? This is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He deserves all praise, all glory, all honor, all service from all people. And one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And yet that person, that, that God of gods became a man and took the form of a servant. That's amazing to me. It really is amazing. Uh, in in uh, another passage in Luke chapter 22, um, Jesus uh, was talking once again with his disciples. He said, um, the, the one who is greatest among you, he said, must become like the youngest. That's like a child, right? Child, children, especially in that culture, were not highly esteemed. Kind of the low end of the, of the hierarchy of society. And the leader, like the servant. And then he asks this question, for, for who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? And the answer is obvious, and he, and he says it. Is it not the one who reclines? And Yes, of course. The one who is greater is the one who reclines, and he is served by the ones who are the lessers. And yet look at what Jesus says. But I am among you as the one who serves. This is the... This is the unexpected nature of the ministry of Jesus and the life of Jesus is that he didn't come the way that people expected. He certainly didn't come the way the Jews expected. The Jews came, expected a, 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 glory, a glorified, uh, mighty, conquering king who would overthrow Rome and establish the earthly millennial kingdom. That, that was what they were expecting. What they got was a humble servant who said, follow me as I serve, you serve. And he made that point perfectly clear in the upper room in John chapter 13 when he, he did the most despicable of tasks. And he, he girded himself with a towel and he went around and wiped and cleaned the disciples' disgusting feet. The feet that had been trotting in the mud and the dust and the manure. And then, and then he... This is, this is their Lord. This is their teacher. And he humbles himself to the most lowliest of stances. This is, the, this is the job that the servants fight over who doesn't get. Right? Everybody's touching their nose. Not me today. And yet Jesus voluntarily does that. And then he says this in, in John 13, verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord. And you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. 
For I have given you an example that you also should do as I did to you. And then he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not a greater than his master, nor one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. When our, our Lord and our Savior was willing to humble himself to the most lowliest tasks, and we're not greater than him, are we? We follow in that. And so as, as the Lord is, is bringing us from who we were at the start of our salvation to who we are supposed to be when we stand in his presence and we are, as 1 John 3 says, we will be like him. As he, in that process, we follow Christ and we follow his example and Christ was a servant. I mean, there is, there is not very many better ways to grow in your faith and grow in your sanctification than by humbling yourself and serving other people. Getting out of, of your own head and, and, and your own importance and, and throwing yourselves into service for the sake of others. It goes completely against the world. It goes completely against our own human natures and yet that's exactly the, the example that Jesus gave us. Paul said of Christ in Philippians 2.5, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. A slave. By being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is our great Lord. This is our teacher. This is the one we follow. If he's not above service, we are neither. Show me a person who wants to be more like Christ. I'll show you a person who wants to serve like Jesus served. Okay? So what, what kind of servants does God want? He wants gospel-enabled, Christ-like servants who follow after their Lord and their master. And that leads us to a third. Leader-equipped, leader-equipped servants. Um, and there's a lot of churches that there is a popular conception of the, the work of the ministry in the church that the, that the work of the ministry belongs to a select group of uh, what we might call professional Christians. Um, you might call them pastors. <laughs> and uh, these, uh, these professional ministers are, they, they exist to serve the church. That's, that's, their, that's their role in the church. The ministers serve and, uh, and the church receives and, and it's true, ministers are servants. The word minister is just from the word, the Greek word diakonos, meaning servant. It's where we get the word deacon from. Deacons are, it's an office in the church, but we could just as well call the office servants. They're official servants, okay? If that takes away some of the, the, the mystery and the, the elevated nature of it. There, there, is, there is honor that comes with it, but, but in reality, Deacons are servants, and they've just been identified because they're faithful servants. And so they're, they're a group of men and women who, who, who work with the elders to, to get things done. Pastors and teachers we are servants. I mean, you just consider how Paul talked about his, his ministry. Think of uh, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5. He says, what's Apollos? Who is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants. He says, diakonos, servants, through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to each one. 
You go over another chapter to chapter 4, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians. He says, let a man consider us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Here the word is for servants is the word huporetes. It's, it's the word for someone who would be in, in the lower deck of a galley ship and they're just rowing the oars. They're nobodies. There are no names. There are no faces. They're hidden down underneath and they're just doing the work of, of, of making the ship move. They're under servants. In Colossians 1.24, maybe you can turn there because we're going to camp on this for just a minute. In Colossians 1.24, Paul describes his ministry this way. He says, uh, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and I fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions in my flesh on behalf of his body. So as a servant, one of the things that he's, he's suffering hardships, and he is He is suffering hardships in his body for the sake of Christ's body, which is the church. He says, of which, uh, of of this church, I have been made a servant according to the stewardship from God given to uh, to me for you so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word. So Paul's life was a life that was devoted to serving the church. That was his role. That was his calling as an apostle and as a pastor. As an evangelist, he was serving the church, but there's a, a, a connection to his service where he's always doing within the context of the word ministry. You look down a few more verses in, uh, in verse 28 of Colossians 1, and look at what he says here. He says, in, or him we proclaim. There's the word ministry again. He's proclaiming Christ. He's proclaiming the gospel. How is he proclaiming it? Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. There is Paul's philosophy of ministry in a nutshell. What was his goal as a a pastor and as an apostle? It was every single person in the church uh, taking them individually to a point where they are mature in Christ, where they're no longer infants who need milk But they can eat solid food and they can act like adult believers. They're mature in Christ. And so he's doing that as he's he's warning people and he's teaching people and he's admonishing them and he's spending time with them. His goal is to make every individual believer mature in Christ. That's what God wants. God wants you as as an individual Christian to grow up into him, to be mature to not stay at, at elementary level, but to progress in your, in your life, in your doctrine, in your ministry. And that's at an individual level. But God also wants that as a church. Because ultimately the church is not a building. The church is not a group of people who run a church. The, group, the church is you. It is the body of believers who have been added by the baptism of the Spirit into Christ's body, the church. So look at Ephesians for a minute. In Ephesians chapter 4. Specifically in verse 11. And he, meaning Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers 
to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So what's all that saying? Well, let's start at the end because that's where the goal is. What, What does God really want? God wants a church that is mature, a church that is fully functioning, where, where everything is working the way it's supposed to work. And how does that happen? How does the, 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 how does the, the church get to that place? Well, you back up to verse 12. As believers are equipped for the work of ministry. Once again, the work of service. That's the word diakoneo. Service. As the church serves and, 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 and works out the, the, the work of the ministry in the body, what's happening is the body is building itself up. It's like, it's like uh, construction workers that are building up the building of the church, bringing it to where it is operating the way it's supposed to be as a mature church. Now, how do we get there? How do we get it so that believers are doing the work of the ministry and equipped to do that? That's where verse 11 comes in. He gave some as as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as shepherds or pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. My job is, is not to do all of the work of ministry, but to prepare you and equip you so that the body can minister to itself. It's the church that ministers to itself. It's the church, it's believers who who are engaged in the work of ministry. Pastors, teachers are, are uniquely gifted to help you do that. As a body, as a church, it's Ephesians 4, but also individually, it's Colossians 1.28. It's why we major on, on the Word of God here. It's why we have a Christian school. It's why we have fellowship groups that are going on right now where the Word is being taught. Where down the hall in children's ministry, Word is being taught. Up there in the, in the, student, uh, in the student room, the Word is being taught. Because that's, that's, that's how God equips believers for the work of service. So as, as a pastor, as, as, a, as a teacher, I want to see you, every, every one of you individually growing in your faith because this is a reciprocal relationship. As you grow as a Christian in your faith and you become mature as an individual, you are more able and more equipped to then serve so that the church as a corporate body might grow. And then as the body grows, it becomes more equipped to help you as a Christian grow individually. It's a reciprocal relationship. And in so doing, we become servants who, by means of equipment from from leaders and pastors and teachers are able to do the work of ministry. You show me a mature, growing, thriving Christian, and I'll show you someone who is faithfully serving in the local church and for the sake of the whole church. And that leads to another another point. God wants um, gospel-enabled servants. He wants... 
Christ-like servants. He wants leader-equipped servants. And he also wants spirit-empowered servants. Spirit-empowered servants. If God has called us to the, the, the office of, uh, or the, the call of, of servanthood, uh, he has not called us to something that he hasn't always, also equipped us in order to fulfill. He hasn't just said, all right, I want you to build a building and good luck. I'm not giving you any tools. <laughs> now, he has given the church tools. I mean, for one, part of the gifts that he has given to the church are pastors and teachers to help you. But even then, that's not, that's not all he's given. He has equipped every single believer with a gift or gifts given by the Spirit of God at salvation by which you can, by the Spirit's power and enablement, serve the body with effective service to build it up into what it is to be. He has not left the church without tools, without equipment. Look at um, 1 Peter chapter 4. In 1 Peter 4, um, beginning in verse 10, Peter writes, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that everything, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So Peter is, is identifying here two broad categories of, of gifts that, that God has given to the church. On the one hand, there are those who are gifted with speaking gifts. These would be those who are evangelists, those who are pastors and teachers, those who have the gift of exhortation, who, who speak, and, and as they speak the word of God, God has a uniquely gifted them by the Holy Spirit to speak in such a way that the word of God makes sense and they can apply it very specifically and powerfully to people's lives. And then, on the other hand, those who, there's, there's speaking gifts and then there are serving gifts, there are doing gifts. Gifts like um, the gift of helps, which is kind of a way of saying those people who are just good at doing all the stuff in the background, the stuff you didn't even know that needed to get done, and they heard about that need, and they just pounced on it because God has given them this gift of helps, of just filling a need. Gift of um, mercy, showing mercy to people who are struggling or hurting. Gift of giving. There are some people who are just gifted with uh, financially and gifted with a heart that says, this isn't mine, I'm just... You need to get that done? I'll help you make that happen. Gift of administration, those who are just gifted in terms of organizing and leading. These are serving gifts. And the point of all these gifts, as he says in verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. The whole point of the spiritual gift is not to serve the self. It's not to... to um, grow yourself, although you grow as you, as you use your gifts, but the point of the gift is to serve others. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, 
To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what is profitable, that is, to what is for the good of others. And you might be saying, that's great. I don't know how God's gifted me. <laughs> maybe, I'm a, maybe you're a new believer. Maybe you just I didn't even know that God had given gifts to, to believers. And, and, uh, and that's okay. Serve anyway. Serve anyway. What you don't want to do is you don't want to say, I don't, I don't know what my gift is, and so I guess I'm out. I'm out. I'm just going to be on the sideline. I'm going to watch because I, I don't know what it is. That's, that's, not, that's not the way you approach this. Part of dis- the, the, the discovery process of understanding how God has gifted you, it's a process of experimentation and discovery. You, you, you ask the Lord for insight. You ask the Lord how, to, to help you see how he's gifted you. You pray about that, and then you just jump in. You try things out. You go here. You go here. You, you consider your natural gifting. Sometimes the Lord doesn't gift you in the way that you are naturally gifted to other things, and sometimes he does. Oftentimes he still does, but, but we're not talking about natural giftings. We're, the spiritual gifts are spirit-empowered gifts that God gives you, but sometimes they align with the things that you, that you have passions for anyway. And so part of it is just considering where, where, where your natural giftings are trying things out, and then evaluating yourself, going, okay, is this a fit? Is this fit? Is this effective? And then asking for feedback from mature believers who can look at what you're doing and say, yeah, you're a teacher. You need to teach. When you teach, people listen, and it's powerful, and it's right on. Or I would find something else to do. (laughs) And you need people in your life to say that. You need people. Because sometimes you don't know. Sometimes we're not a good evaluator sometimes of ourselves. We need to self-evaluate. We need to do it based on the reliance on the Spirit. But we also need other people who are Spirit-empowered to look and say, yeah, this is effective. Or uh, try something else. And it's okay. This is all a discovery process. This is how God designed it to work. And if you end up serving in an area where it's not your gifting, guess what? That's okay too. Because in reality, nobody has a corner on who gets to serve where. If you're not gifted to evangelize, it doesn't mean that you don't evangelize people. If, if, you have a, if somebody has a need and you don't have the gift of helps, guess what? Fill it anyway. If you can fill it, if you can fill that need, jump in and do it. And what, um, what uh, Robert Thomas wrote a, a great book on spiritual gifts called Understanding Spiritual Gifts. It's just an exposition of, uh, of 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. And this is what he had to say about this. He said, every one of the eight gifts represents a general Christian responsibility. A ministry where every Christian is responsible to God to be active, whether he or she has that gift or not. If you turn out not to be gifted in a given way, you have not sinned. You have simply obeyed God in trying to have a positive effect on the growth of the, church, of the body of Christ through carrying out duties every Christian should be performing. It's no sin to witness to a lost person and to seek to win him to Christ if you don't have the gift of evangelism. It's no sin to try to comfort a bereaved brother or sister in Christ without having the gift of showing mercy. That is a service you should be performing anyway, he says, whether you have the gift or not. 
The same is true throughout the list of the eight operative gifts. Each is a duty every child of God needs to carry out, even without that specific specialized ability. In the process of trying out the gifts one by one, you will not only discover your gift, but you will fulfill the will of God for your life as a Christian, because ultimately what are we called to? Servanthood. So my, my exhortation to each one of you is, is, is to serve, to try things out, to see where God has gifted you if you don't already know. It's, it, it is a discovery process. It can be intimidating, but it can also be really exciting. And as soon as you find that area of ministry where, where God has gifted you, um, you will see God powerfully work in that because that's how God has gifted you to serve uniquely in the church. So jump in, jump into ministry, but do it in our final way as one who is a character-driven servant. I just want to touch on this for a moment. We're not going to dive in as deeply as I was hoping to, but I just want to say this. Serving is not just an external thing. We think of service as something that we do. We go, we serve in children's ministry, we serve in youth, we sing on the stage, we, we teach, we do something like that, and it's something that we do and it's external, but it's more than external. God cares just as much about what is going on in the heart as he cares about what's going on on the outside. And there's some traps that we can fall into as we serve. And so we need to be aware of them. There's two things to be aware of. Number one, your motivation. Number two, your attitude. These things matter. There's wrong motivations for serving. Serving out of guilt. And it's not my intention to guilt anyone in in this room into serving. That's not my intention. I'm, I'm hoping that the, the Lord brings some accountability, some weight from the word. But that's different than guilt. You don't serve out of guilt. You serve out of joy. You serve because you desire to serve. But that's not the only reason that people serve for, for the wrong reason. Another motivation that you don't want to have is you don't want to have have a a motivation of being noticed, of being praised by people. There's a lot of ways to serve in the church that will get you praise. One of them is what I'm doing right now. That's why James warns teachers not to be many because you will incur a stricter judgment because if I were to preach with the desire to just hear you guys come and say, oh, that was such a good sermon, Nathan, I don't want to hear that. (laughs) I mean, it scares me a little bit to hear that because it's always the temptation in my heart to, to latch on to that rather than hearing Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. So I, I'm just saying that I'm being transparent. <laughs> That's the temptation of the teacher, but it's not just to the teacher. There's lots of ways that we will be tempta- tempted to, to serve, to get ahead, to be noticed, to get praised by men. That's not the reason you serve. You want to know the, the core reason why you serve? What the core motivation is? Love. Love is why we serve. 1 Corinthians 13. We always associate it with weddings, but I assure you in its context, it has nothing to do with weddings at all. In the context, it has everything to do with spiritual gifts. And just let me, let me read the beginning of 1 Corinthians 13 because this is going to put it in context here. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels... But I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers 
and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not love, love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I do not love, I gain nothing. It is all for nothing. It's pointless. So the, the motivation that we need to have as we serve is not to be noticed. It's not to, to add a guilt of some kind. It's because we love each other. What did John tell, or Jesus tell his disciples in the upper room in John 13, 34? A new commandment I give to you. What? Love one another. As I have loved you, so you love one another. And that love is, you can think of as synonymous with serving each other. It's not all that love entails. We love each other as we forgive. Remember, love covers a multitude of sins. There's more ways in which we express love to each other, but it's not less than serving. We, love, we serve because we love. So there's that aspect to it where we have to be careful of motivation. There's one other thing that we need to be careful about, that's attitude. There's wrong ways in which we serve. And serve out of pride. And that, that will keep you from service, by the way. If you're prideful, if you're arrogant, if you have a sense of, I am better than other people, how do you think that that's going to actually motivate you to serve anybody? I'm, that's going to motivate you to say, I know they need people in children's ministry, or I know that, but that's not really my thing. That's kind of beneath me. I don't need to work with kids. That's the attitude that keeps you from serving. And then there's grumbling and complaining. And that spoils your service. That's where you say, okay, I'm going, I'll, I'll do that thing. They've asked me to, and I'll do it, but I'm, I don't have to like it. I mean, I, I know, I know there's, there's plenty of very busy people in this room right now. People who have not very much time. And so it's a temptation when somebody comes and says, hey, can you help me here? Or can you serve in this area for me? We really need this. And, and, and you're not going to say no, but in, the, in your heart you're going, I've got better things to do with my time. Those are all answered with one word. You know what it is? Humility. Humility. That's the fundamental attitude of serving. Philippians 2, verse 2. Fulfill my joy. Do you think the same way by maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose, doing nothing from selfish ambition or vainglory? That's pride. But with humility of mind, regarding one another is more important than yourselves, not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. That's, that's the capstone of ministry there. That's what happens on the inside that not everybody sees, but it's there and God sees it. And it can be like, you know, biting into an apple that looks good on the outside and it's rotten on the inside. You don't want to serve that way. So as we serve, as we exercise these spiritual gifts, as we build up the body to maturity in Christ as a body, um, we want to do it in love. We want to do it in humility. We want to do it, uh, serve in a way that matters. That's my call to each of us. Uh, we're not going to get to the rest. I know you're looking at the clock going, he's not, he's not going to go on, is he? No, I'm not. This is going to be for a different time. We'll, we've, we've got some more stuff that we're going to talk about, uh, maybe, maybe at a different sermon uh, when I have an opportunity to preach again. But um, in the meantime, let this be a call. Search your heart. 
maybe be encouraged to just keep on persevering in what you're doing uh, in, in your service, or, or maybe this is a, um, uh, an admonition to, to, to get into the game, to get off the sideline and into the game. And for some of you, if you don't know Christ, this is time to take a step back and to come to know the Lord first. Okay. Let's, let me pray uh, as we close. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for the, the, the ministry and the, the model that you showed us. The Son of God coming to serve rather than to be served. Taking the form of a slave. Humbling yourself to the point of dying on a Roman cross. Girding yourself with a, a towel and wiping up the feet of your disciples. And then calling us, your disciples, to do the same. May we answer that call, Lord. May we search our hearts and may we um, respond to this call in a way that, that uh, invigorates service and maybe sets a new culture for our church, for Anchorage Grace, to be a church that is just marked by servanthood. Doing it all because we love each other and because we understand who we are in Christ and we don't think of ourselves more higher than we ought to. But we humble us, we humble ourselves, we put each, each other before our own interests. Thank you, Father, for this call. Thank you for its noble calling. And we entrust it to you in Jesus' name. Amen.